Thank you, Chris, for reading our passage. Two weeks ago, Mike took us through Isaiah 9, the promise of Christ's coming, who he would be and what he would do. And last week, Paul walked us through Matthew 1, the birth of Christ. So I get to continue in our short, I guess, series, if you would, maybe, mini-series on Christ. Uh, Today, we come to Philippians 2 to look at the life of Jesus, a life of humility. There are so many things that this passage teaches, uh, each of which could fill its own sermon. Um, and It's an incredibly wealthy passage on Christology. Uh, in fact, I'd be happy to pass on any one of a number of uh, links to free online messages that I've listened to over the last number of weeks that um, I've benefited benefited from uh, really greatly. Um, All of them focus on a slightly different portion of our passage or of Philippians as a whole, or they go, you know, a bit deeper into certain portions, but all are incredibly helpful. So honestly, let me know afterwards if if you, you work one of those jobs where you drive a lot or you're working and have headphones in or whatever. Uh, I have a number of great recommendations. Most of them Mike gave me, but a number of other ones that I found and All will build you up even more, kind of take you probably from this point this morning and expand most of them far deeper into into very specific aspects of the passage. So anyway, let me know. Uh, But what we're going to do today is look at Philippians 2, 5 through, I think we're going to kind of, you know, get verse 13 in there. So I know some things say 5 through 12. I'm going to say 5 through 13, but really 12 and 13 are just touched on, um, kind of to, to send us off. But uh, Philippians 2, 5 through 13, and we're going to see what it says about the life of Jesus. I want for us to see that as an, that an overarching theme in Christ's life is that of humility. What is your first thought when you hear me say we're going to talk about humility? What does humility look like in your mind? Uh, is there sure to be some sort of a, an idea or thought or an image conjured up in your mind at the topic of humility? Maybe thoughts of someone poor or weak or even pathetic? Or maybe an image of someone refusing to accept praise, kind of deflecting it elsewhere? Uh, Paul has something to say about humility in our passage. Uh, so let's start in verse 5. Um, as we enter into the letter that Paul has written to the Philippians... He's in the midst of making an appeal to them, but we're going to kind of step around the appeal uh, and really just use verse 5, at least for now, uh, as a starting point, the starting point of the the very end of that, of getting us to Christ. Verse 6 then picks up, speaking of Christ, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. My first point today out of three points in my outline is uh, Christ, the Son of God, acted in humility. Though Jesus was God, he was fully God, the very same in essence and nature, having all the characteristics of God, or the way the ESV uh, states it, he was in the form of God, though all this was true, He humbled himself. Paul says he, or Christ, 
being in the form of God. Uh, even the word being, right off the bat here, uh, carries great significance. It speaks of Christ already existing as God. Um, recall the verse, before Abraham was, I am, Christ said. Or as Gordon Fee explains, Paul's statement of being in the form of God, he says, Christ was characterized by what was essential to being God. He also says Christ was in very nature God. That was after all of his linguistic study that I'm not going to try to deeply walk you through. Um, this is who Christ was. He preexisted as God, fully divine. John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Christ himself claimed divinity clearly, clearly enough, in fact, that he was almost stoned for it in John 10.30 when he says, I and the Father are one. His audience clearly understood he was claiming divinity. And in Hebrews 1.3, we read of Christ, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Humility, then, is part of who God is. It is part of what makes God, God. Uh, really, as I've been thinking through um, things on this passage for the last number of weeks, it struck me that the entirety of God's plan of redemption shows us his humility, that God would condescend and choose to love those who are only entirely unworthy and undesirable and who have rejected him and rebelled against him, and he would do this at great cost to himself. Our God is a God who perfectly portrays and teaches us humility by his own example. In this, we see that humility does not simply apply to the, the parts of Jesus' life where we see him as you know, a frail baby or a humble servant or even a suffering savior, uh, in those aspects of Jesus' life, we absolutely do see humility, but it was first shown and exhibited as Jesus, fully divine in all of his glory, chose to humble himself by refusing to demand his rights or think first and foremost of himself, though he would have been justified in doing so. Instead, he decided to have an attitude and a mindset of humility. Christ emptied or poured out himself by taking on flesh, our passage says. Uh, I wanted to quickly note that at this point right here, uh, in my preparation for this message, I was really torn about whether or not I should take where our passage brings us here. I take this and lead and expand more fully into the Christmas story because there's so much that could be said there. Um, some, some stuff that would benefit us greatly, as later this week, most of us will be devoting much of our, our hearts and minds to that. Verse 7 and 8, like I said, lead us really directly to that point, but for the sake of our overall focus, um, for the sake of time, we're not going to go there, except I just want to acknowledge that you know, as we come to Christmas later on, I think Friday, is Friday Christmas? I was thinking all along it was Thursday. Uh, my wife and I were talking about schedule this morning, and she said, yeah, because Wednesday's Christmas Eve. And I went, yeah. Then we started looking at the calendar. And, you know, so as we come later on to Christmas, uh, this Christ, 
that our passage teaches so deeply, so clearly, um, that we're hearing about today. This is the one who deserves our focus and our worship, not only on Christmas Day, of course, but daily. Uh, As Paul states later in this book, he says, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. That was Paul's focus. That is the Christ who we should be giving our attention and our focus to, especially on Christmas Day. Uh, But let's pick our passage up again, our text, going forward from verse 7 into verse 8. Paul says, But Christ emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So now we move from seeing Jesus... Son of God acting in humility, point one. Jesus, Son of God acting in humility. To Jesus the man living and dying in humility. This is the second point of the three points. Make that abundantly clear. I told somebody I'm not good at giving outlines. I'm trying to give at least somewhat of an outline. All right. Jesus the man living and dying in humility. When Jesus became flesh, the preexistent infinite God willingly emptied himself by becoming a frail, mortal man wrapped in flesh. In doing so, Christ chose to submit himself to a life among his creation where he would experience hunger and loss, temptation, pain, sorrow, and ultimately separation from the Father in disgrace as he bore every despicable sin committed by those who would be saved so that he could die at the very hands of those he came to save, those whom he had also created. Christ did this as our substitute. He did this to satisfy the Father's wrath against us. This is humility. Verse 7, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. Like Paul's other use of this word, form, the word morphe, Uh, This is Paul telling us that Christ became a servant. Not just that he acted like a servant, he actually became a servant. A bond slave even, like the ones that, as I read, I was not there, but apparently in Paul's time, the difference between the slaves or the servants who would serve for a season and then maybe every seventh year or whatever be freed, uh, said as opposed to that, These bond slaves would of their own volition bind themselves to their master, their household, by nailing their ear to the doorpost uh, of the home. This was done to demonstrate their steadfast intention to serve forever those whom they'd bound themselves to. Um, In this way, as the, the language tells us, Christ came as a bond slave. This was Christ's intention in the incarnation. It was come to come to serve not to be served. Uh, He was born in the likeness of of men. To paraphrase Fee again, he says, likely the change of verbiage from using the word that that we translate form to the word translated likeness is at least in part to emphasize to us or to make us think about the reality that while Christ became fully human, he was also still fully God. Uh, So he didn't become, if you will, just a human. Uh, 
or he didn't become a human at the expense of his divinity. So he was fully human, but retained his nature, as we talked about, as fully God, fully divine. Verse 8, being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. Christ humbled himself as God in that he was willing to become a man. And now as man, he continues his trajectory of humility downward to death. And it's really important to note that and to remember that all of this was done willingly. John 10, 17 and 18 says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. Verse 18, No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. This was a willing act. So Christ humbles himself to death. And not just death in that he's now mortal, uh, and so his human body will eventually give out or fail or expire, but death in the most demeaning and despised way, death on a cross. One of the sermons I was listening to said, it was commonly said that of crucifixion that to die of crucifixion was like dying a thousand deaths. I'm sure physically and all that, but we know far more than that, all that Christ endured spiritually. So he submitted himself to death on a cross. All of this was done by Christ in obedience to the Father so that the Father's plan from eternity past that had been prophesied about could be brought to pass and perfectly fulfilled. In verse 9, Paul transitions from this, these downward steps of Christ's humility, his willing humility, to a therefore. And this therefore brings about our third and final main point of our outline, uh, God exalting Christ. The text says, therefore, so meaning after or as a result of what came before which was Christ's humble obedience and sacrifice that we've spoken about. After, as a result of that, God exalts Christ. Verse 9 says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Uh, this exaltation, or a super exaltation as it could be translated, apparently Paul did that, kind of uniquely to Paul it, from what I understand, did that, which, you know, just a super exaltation. Think about it, okay? Uh, we don't really have a word to exactly fit super exaltation. Uh, but this, uh, and all that this super exaltation entails, it's not Christ receiving something that he didn't formally have, or something that he was lacking, that's impossible. Uh, if you recall, the first portion of our text, we saw that Christ uh, already possessed the very nature of God. Uh, he was the exact imprint. That doesn't mean except for the things he lacked, because he didn't lack anything. 
But instead, this exaltation is an official proclamation by God the Father. It's a call to all created beings. This Jesus is Christ, the promised Messiah who fulfilled the prophecies. He is the Savior. He's also God. Jesus Christ, the Lord. The very Lord of the Old Testament, the only one to whom every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Uh, I'm going to take us over to Isaiah 45. Steve, I think, is going to put it up here. Uh, It's a bit of a lengthy passage, so I'd encourage you either just to maybe close your eyes and listen, or if you follow better by reading, you can follow on the, the projector. It's up on the PowerPoint. Listen to what Isaiah says in Isaiah 45 of the Lord. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. I will go before you and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes in secret places that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by your name. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen, I call you by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. I am the Lord. There is no other besides me. There is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Shower, O heavens, from above, and let the clouds rain down righteousness. Let the earth open that salvation and righteousness may bear fruit. Let the earth cause them both to sprout. I, the Lord, have created it. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him, a pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or... Your work has no handles. Woe to him who says to a father, what are you begetting? Or to a woman, with what are you in labor? Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, and the one who formed him. Ask me of things to come, and you will command me concerning my children and the work of my hands? I made the earth and created man on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens, and I commanded all their hosts. I have stirred him up in righteousness, and I will make all his ways level. He shall build my city and set my exiles free. Not for price or reward, says the Lord of hosts. Thus says the Lord, the wealth of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush and the Sabians, men of stature, shall come over to you and be yours. They shall follow you. They shall come over in chains and bow down to you. They will plead with you, saying, Surely God is in you, and there is no other, no God besides him. Truly you are a God who hides himself, O God of Israel, the Savior. All of them are put to shame and confounded. The makers of idols go in confusion together. But Israel is saved by the Lord with everlasting salvation. You shall not be put to shame or confounded to all eternity. For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, he is God, who formed the earth and made it. He established it. He did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I did not speak in secret in a land of darkness. 
I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. Assemble yourselves and come. Draw near together, you survivors of the nations. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idols and keep on praying to a God that cannot save. Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none besides me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God. There is no other. By myself I have sworn from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Only in the Lord it shall be said of me our righteousness and strength. To him shall come and be ashamed all who were incensed against him. In the Lord, all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. That passage is, it's been called by some, the greatest passage, single passage on God's sovereignty. Uh, At this name, Kurios, Lord, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Only to that name, all knees will bow. The angels, men, dead men, demons. Uh, Think of the most despicable human you've ever personally known or that you could even think of. That one will bow. Uh, Just imagine uh, the most God-abhorring, a blasphemous individual you can conjure up in your mind, that person will bow. And all of these created beings, all created beings ever, who will all bow and confess, will be doing so in one of two ways. They will either be bowing and confessing in absolute joyful praise and adoration, thanksgiving, love and worship, or they will be doing so in utter sorrow, with mourning and weeping and in dismay. So, Christ Fellowship, so what? Uh, What do we do or what do we think when we've been presented with this kind of a weight of truth? How do we react What's our takeaway after learning of or looking again at Jesus, the Son of God, acting in humility? Jesus, the man living and dying in humility, and God exalting Christ. Let's start by going back to our passage and putting it in its context. Paul wrote this entire letter to the Philippian believers in light of actual struggles and trials. And he wrote to do at least two things, to express his love and his deep affection and care toward them, and to exhort them, exhorting them to stand firm in the faith and exhorting them to be unified. We're not going to try to survey the entire book of Philippians really quickly or get into all the various specifics of Paul's exhortations or even do a really quick sweeping overview of the letter Um, But we're going to look at the more immediate context of our passage for today. 
by way of application. In chapter 2, Paul calls for unity. I believe he appeals to the Philippians to be unified on the basis of what comes before in chapter 1, their common salvation and their resulting position in Christ. They are in Christ, so they should be living like it. They should be walking worthy of this calling, he says. Then Paul gives specifics about walking worthy. Walking worthy grows out of a mindset or an attitude of humility, and it leads to unity. By humbly doing the things that he lays out in chapter 2, portions of verses 1 and 2, and by not doing the things in chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, what Paul does there in verses 1 through 4, he kind of states some things, then he does a, like a negative restatement, and when I was reading that, I could not, I, I don't know why, I couldn't help, but I think of what I do with my son at bedtime. I like to make myself abundantly clear to make, to make it fair for him, but also I'm thinking that will produce better compliance and obedience. Uh, so I think that's what Paul does. In, in my case, I normally go, Owen, we're going to go potty, we're going to brush your teeth, we're going to go lay down, we'll read some books and sing, and then you need to close your eyes, lay still, and go to sleep. And that means you do not get up and say, Daddy, I need to get another drink. Or you do not get up and say, Daddy, I need to go potty and poo-poo right after I leave. Or you do not put your feet up on the wall and bang your feet on the wall. Uh, And the list of nots can actually go on for quite some time because there are a lot of specifics that tend to happen. And it doesn't always work. But uh, the point is, I try to make myself clear. I want this. I don't want these things. I think that's what Paul is doing uh, in verses 1 through 4. Some version of that. Maybe not that exactly. But he's trying to make it abundantly clear. But what he does not do that I might be used to or I might expect being the American that I am in our day and age, he doesn't follow up his statement of a desire with then or you know, for what should happen with a, a list of self-help tactics for how the Philippians can change uh, their actions and habits. He doesn't, you know, say, go to Facebook. There's this great link that is 10 <laughs> things to do or not to do. He doesn't do those things. Instead, he points them to Christ. He says, so now, Philippians, to walk worthy in the unity that the gospel calls us to, change your mindset, your attitude, and have among yourselves the mindset of Christ. Uh, To address a lack of unity and a need to stand firm in the faith, Paul has brought them to the gospel, the ultimate display of humility, uh, of the humility of Christ, and he says, let this be your mindset. Don't be selfish or conceited. Be like Christ, who willingly chose not to use his divine power and position to his advantage. Don't think first of yourself or look first to your own interests, but be like Christ who laid down his life to look to the interests of others. Uh, This is our first point of application, our takeaway. Like the Philippians, we have the common or even maybe universal struggle with having unity in the way that we should. We struggle with standing firm in the faith. 
Um, so we, uh, right along with the Philippians, are pointed to Christ. Have this mindset. And this is an appeal to humble unity in community. Uh, it goes on to say, have this mindset among yourselves. Uh, this is, it's, it's a call to the body, not just a standalone call to individuals trying to improve their personal Christ-likeness. Obviously, we are responsible for ourselves, but this is a call to unity among the body. Okay, uh, As we respond correctly in unity together, we push each other to lives of gospel fruitfulness. Like the fruit seen in verses 1 and 2, the fruitfulness or the worthy walk that results from this humble unity, I believe, is what we see referenced in verses 12 and 13. And yes, this is our touching briefly on verses 12 and 13. Uh, It is the outworking, this gospel fruitfulness is the outworking of our salvation as God works in us to transform our will and our actions to his good and perfect pleasure. So that's our first point of application or takeaway. Our second and last point of application, uh, let us simply be reminded that we of all people should be humble. We must understand the reality of who we are. We're nothing, nothing but sinners deserving of everlasting punishment, living and dying in the darkness and hunger and gloom of anguish that Mike taught us about, that we are born into. But God, in Christ, did for us what we could never do. This humbles us. Not it should make us humble. It humbles us. Furthermore, we look to Christ and we see his mindset, his attitude, and we're called to emulate, to have the mind among ourselves, what our perfect Savior and Lord modeled for us. To quote Calvin on this, he says, Christ's humility consisted in his abasing himself from the highest pinnacle of glory to the lowest ignominy or public shame and disgrace. Our humility consists in refraining from exalting ourselves by a false estimation. He gave up his right, all that is required of us, is that we don't assume to ourselves more than we ought. If you're here this morning and you've never before today heard or believed the gospel that we just looked at, I hope that you understand where you fall in this passage from God's word. You will be bowing your knee and confessing with your tongue that Christ is Lord, but it will be a time of sorrow and pain and regret. However, if you have believed, or if you will humbly uh, believe in repentance, and if you will trust in and confess Christ as Lord, then this bowing and confessing can be and will be a wonderful outpouring of joyful thanks and praise to God. Let me ask again, what... Do you think about humility? What does humility look like in your mind? Do you see humility as one of the perfections of an almighty God? Do you think of the Son of God and how he lived 
and died. Let's pray to God and thank uh, him for his word and ask for his grace as we seek to adjust our mindset and our attitude to be more like that of Jesus Christ our Lord. Father, uh, we are humbled this morning by this truth from your word, by the honest uh, evaluation of ourselves in light of it. Uh, we are nothing that, that deserve, no one that deserves anything, um, but by your grace, uh, through what Christ did on the cross, we can be forgiven, we can be uh, reconciled to you, we can be made clean, and we thank you for this. We pray, Lord, that you would give us a continued mindset of um, humility based on uh, Christ, our perfect model, uh, not just someone who acted in such a way, but who made himself willingly nothing, emptied himself, poured himself out for our good. Uh, Lord, I pray that uh, if anyone here or anyone that we will come across this week has not heard or does not know uh, the gospel, that you would give opportunity for us as the believers at Christ Fellowship to share it, to share what your gospel has graciously done in our lives and uh, what we can continue to learn from it daily. Um, please give that opportunity. Give faithfulness to us in uh, proclaiming it, even if, as we have Christmas gatherings with family and friends and maybe interact with unbelievers, maybe neighbors or coworkers, please give opportunity. Help us to be faithful in a, uh, a true, humble uh, testimony of what your gospel uh, shows us about Christ and about ourselves. We thank you for this. Uh, be with the rest of our day. Help us to uh, assimilate this truth into our life. In Christ's name, amen.